everyone, and welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. Today, we have two very special guests. I'm joined by Michael Sibo and Dalton Caldwell, managing directors and group partners at the legendary Y Combinator. In case you don't know, Y Combinator is one of the most successful startup accelerators and venture capital funds in the world. And since March 2005, has helped over 5,000 startup founders build and launch companies like Stripe, Airbnb, DoorDash, Dropbox, Reddit, and the list goes on and on. This was a fascinating conversation, and Michael and Dalton talked about lessons learned from their years of experience with YC, what they look for in a founding team, and why they are so passionate about helping entrepreneurs. We also touched on their decision to expand beyond the U.S. and back entrepreneurs from all over the world and the fascinating network effects this has created. Dalton and Michael also shared lessons from working with over 200 fintech companies, including Brex, Stripe, and Coinbase, and some of the fintech trends they are most excited about. And we could not end this conversation without talking about the state of diversity in the industry and hearing what Michael has to say about it. Plus, you will find a lot more golden nuggets of information. Now, let's dive in to my conversation with Michael Siebel and Dalton Caldwell. Michael, Dalton, thank you so much for joining us on the Wharton Fintech Podcast. Uh, Really honored and very happy to have you here. Before we get started, maybe we can hear a little bit about your background and the road that um, took you to your current role. Maybe we can get started with Michael. Yeah. So I did YC twice, once in 2007 with a company named Justin TV that went on to become Twitch, and once in 2012 with a company named SocialCam. And I think that I fell in love with YC because I saw how hard it was for people to break in to the Valley, if you don't have the right credentials or the right relationships. And it felt like YC offered a much more fair on-ramp. And so in many ways, I always wanted to be a teacher when I retired and kind of the opportunity to work with founders and give back to the community that helped me out so much seemed like the best of both worlds. For me, I was the founder of a company called iMeme from 2003 to 2010. And then I started a second company called Mixed Media Labs, which lasted until 2014. I really liked startups. I really liked changing ideas and launching products. And um, I wasn't sure if, how long I was going to stay working at YC, but I ended up liking it way more than I expected. It was a lot more fun than I expected to see so many people cranking through ideas so fast. And so I, this is my 16th batch. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Wow. True veterans. Uh, you've probably seen thousands of companies over the years, right? I mean, YC has really evolved. How would you describe the evolution of YC from when you first got involved to today? To provide the short answer, and this is Michael, is that I think that when YC first started in 2005, if you had a team of two software engineers and you wanted to build a product, it was really hard to raise any money at all. It was really hard to find anyone who would give you money. And I think that that was YC's base. And it was such an important base to build a path for people who didn't have connections. I think today what's so amazing is now that there's a network of 5,000 YC founders all over the world, 
when you join YC, you get to consume from that network and you get to contribute back to it. And so as YC gets bigger and bigger, I actually think that the partners and the advice and the program goes from being kind of the central component to just one of the many components that's viable about being part of this ecosystem. And the other thing I think is so amazing is how it's expanded to help companies before they ever do YC with startup school, with a whole bunch of software during and after YC to have a community with funding after even that with continuity. So in many ways, YC continues to grow and evolve and figure out new ways to help founders. I always like to think that when you give us 7% of your company, our job is to re-earn it every year. And so that's why I think it's really fun. I think that was a good answer. I think the only thing I would add is you can think of YC itself as an MVP. If we think of it as a product, the original version of it was very simple. <laughs> you would like, you know, in the first batch, you would go to this little room and like Paul Graham would cook you chili, vegetarian chili. And, um, <laughs> you know, then you would like go do a demo on stage and most people never raise any money. You know, it was like <laughs> the truest minimum vial product. And so every batch, we always just try to do better. Like we always try to improve something. We try to track how we're doing the same way we would do running a startup ourselves. And it seems like YC itself had product market fit pretty early where people were excited about it. And so we've just been trying to follow this continuous improvement thing. And probably the biggest change I've seen, I know we're going to be speaking about this probably a lot on this talk, but is watching international happen. Because when YC first started, the scope of companies that were in the batch tended to be pretty US-centric. And then since Michael and I started working here, it's been fascinating to have a front row seat to see just the scope of the kinds of companies that are applying from all over the world. And um, I think that's just a side effect of the MVP having success, right? And succeeding outside of that initial network. No, that's, that's fascinating. I was going to save that question for later, but I think it's perfect timing to talk about. You're becoming increasingly global. Right. So I wanted to understand if that is driven by the number of applications that you're getting from global entrepreneurs or global startups, or that's also driven by your own willingness and appetite that you know, now you are more willing than ever to help and back international companies. I'll let Dalton take the lead on this one. Both. I think like what's so crazy is... Um, I saw this firsthand. Like, um, I remember we funded this company called Platzi, who is based in Mexico and Colombia. I interviewed them and I accepted them. And I think they were one of the first, if not the first, I don't want to overstep my bounds here, but one of the first companies in Latin America that we funded, specifically serving a Latin American audience. And it went well. And I remember the next batch, this company called Rappi applied. And they applied because the Platzi founders told them about YC and said it was great. <laughs> and so I literally watched the word of mouth happen from one company that I funded to another company. And, you know, Rappi's like, um, I don't know what's public or what's not, but it's a, it's a multi-billion dollar company um, in Latin America. It's very big. And that's an example of kind of network effects in action that because we funded Platzi, which is a good company in its own right, it led to word of mouth and trust and all these other good side effects. And now it is astonishing how many folks apply to YC that are aware of Rappi or know the founders of Rappi or worked at Rappi or you name it. And on the fintech side, we saw the same thing happen with India, where I remember we funded, um, I don't know who was the first people like to fight about this, but you know, a few Indian companies. 
And then I remember when I interviewed Razorpay, I was like, oh yeah, cool. We've had pretty good luck with these Indian companies and you know, Stripe for India sounds pretty big and, and we funded Razorpay, right? And again, that's a, another FinTech unicorn that I think the reason they applied or the, and part of the, our excitement to fund them was because these early network effects of funding companies in India. You know what I mean? And so it's basically both to answer your question. We get a lot more applications as people see a company from their country that's made it and they're like, I could do it too. And we also have had some good success doing so. And so we're excited to fund them. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. But that also begs the question. So you are originally from the US, you're US based. How to ensure that you're not only backing the right fintech or the right startup, but that you do it in the context of each company's local ecosystem? I think that's actually pretty straightforward. We're not running the companies. <laughs> and right, like, like, and we don't take board seats, basically. And so a lot of these folks, like we try to fund people that are experts and that don't need like remedial help on how to talk to customers or get money, you know, get customers to pay the money, right? We, we assume that the people we fund are competent. And the ways that we can help is kind of giving them access to capital as well as to networks, which are pretty darn valuable. And so the, we never think that we actually know how to operate one of these companies. I'll let I'll Michael jump in on this one, but like <laughs> there was never a time where when I was trying to advise Razorpay, which is building a payments processor in India, that I thought I'd be like giving them tactics for how to operate a payment processor in India, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm way out of uh, my depths on that one. And so, and when you think about it as a founder, wearing my founder hat, that's kind of what I want from an investor. It's not someone trying to operate my company for me. Go, go I, ahead, Mike. <laughs> I think this is a common fallacy amongst a lot of people who are thinking about startups. I think that there's a group of people who are thinking about startups who think, the investor will tell me how to build a great business. And when I get a great investor, what I'm buying is a step-by-step guide to becoming a billion-dollar company. And you know, Dalton and I have worked with a lot of great investors and a lot of great founders, and that's not really their mentality. Their mentality is like, the investor is going to help me with the things that I'm not good at, that they are an expert at, and then they're going to let me run my company. And unfortunately, I think as startups are getting more popular, the group of people who kind of want to be told what to do is increasing. And that's really, really tricky because if I've got a bet on two people going after the same market, one knows the market, understands it, and wants to build for it, and the other wants to be told what to do, it's an obvious bet. So it sounds like the lessons that you've learned over the years are universal, right? The sounds like uh, the recipe for success in the startup world. In many cases, they're universal. And then speaking of those lessons, what are maybe some of the counterintuitive lessons that you've learned over the years that have allowed you to help incoming batches of entrepreneurs? I think the one lesson that sticks in my mind in the moment is that investors are not as important as people think they are. I think that investors have been elevated to this ungodly level of importance. And what's interesting is in the time that Dalton and I came up, there was a revolution where in the 90s, it cost $5 million to build a website. And in the 2000s, it didn't. 
And the revolution that we tried to be a part of was the revolution of like investors are less important. Yet somehow in this kind of, you know, in this generation, I think a lot of them are listening to Naval saying, oh, I've got to build a brand. I think a lot of founders are responding to these brand building investors and thinking that these people are messiahs in the kind of central of the world. And that is the biggest, I think, counterintuitive message that I can send. It's like, yeah, these people are going to help, but like, they're just helping. And it, please don't build for an investor as if they were the customer. Along the same lines, but not exactly the same thing. So many people think that fundraising is the goal and that if they get money, it will work. Like you talk to just the average founder that I talked to, you know, NYC, outside of YC, and the people you can spot that are not as sophisticated, the way you can spot them is that they, they really think if they, someone gives them money, they got it made. And that's it. Like a startup is just add water. If you get money, if you raise money, you did it, you're done. And what it really feels like on the inside is that money is just kind of an afterthought. Maybe you spend 5% of your brain CPU cycles talking about fundraising or talking about capital market stuff. I'm not saying it's not important, but man, when you speak with someone that's operating a company that's really working, fundraising is, it's like this amount of their brain cycles go into it. And 95% is going into crap, users, product, hiring, shipping code, and like all this stuff that's kind of not as fun to talk about on social media, or I guess on podcasts or whatever, than cool fundraising stories, right? But um, yeah, it's crazy how many people think the main event is fundraising. And I don't know what we do about that, but that's like the number one misconception that I see. There's one more that I think Dalton opened my mind to, which was that, you know, Dalton does his presentation at NYC. And one of the things he talks about is how extraordinary you have to be to succeed. Like how rare it is to succeed. And it kind of sets up this question, which is that like, if success is really rare, how many decisions do you make have to be the exact same as the average startup around you versus very different? And as I thought about that more and more, I started realizing that like, most smart people put themselves in a group of smart people and they perform average. And that does great. That's like a, a winning strategy, right? If you put yourself in the top 10% or 5% of the kids in your high school and you're average, you're getting to a good college. If you are a CS major and you're top 5% of the CS major, you're going to get a great internship at Facebook. And so we see a lot of folks where like this strategy has worked so often and bam, they come to the startup world. And now we tell them, you got to rip that blanket off. That doesn't work. Like success looks different. And I think that's not only counterintuitive, once people understand it, it's still very uncomfortable. It's very uncomfortable to do something different than the crowd you're in. But the best founders, by luck, by skill, whatever, figure out <laughs> how to not just go with the crowd. And zooming in on the financial sector, right? I was looking at your stats and, you know, the really interesting. 15% of your companies are fintech companies. And that is not a small absolute number. That's 200 fintech companies. So you've definitely learned uh, quite a bit about fintech teams at, at their early stage. What would you say that you know, you, you've learned to look for in a fintech team? I'll take a couple of swings at that. One, technical excellence product excellence, design excellence. If you look at Brex, they had built a fintech company before and they'd actually built their own 
crazy backend system to do with you know the entire stack. You know, I'm trying to say they built it with the first startup and they were like, man, that was crap. And so with Brex, they got to rewrite all the same systems they built for their first startup. And man, are those folks good programmers, like scary good. And part of the reason they'd be able to move so fast is that the entire backbone of the company is really well architected by extremely sophisticated folks. And I've had great luck funding folks with really good design. Like we talked about Point earlier, they had a really excellent design co-founder and you could see it in their product. That's like their differentiating value prop, right? Is this really well designed. And so we sometimes see fintech companies where they treat engineering and product as an afterthought. And we have not had as great luck with that. <laughs> you know what I'm trying to say? Like, you want to see that as a first class thing on the team. So that, that's just one criteria I've seen that works. Another one is sophistication around the relevant regulatory pathways that they're subject to. And so if you're operating in various countries, you're likely regulated by said countries and you need to be smarter than the average person <laughs> to not run afoul of those regulations. Uh, let me give you a great example. I would argue that Coinbase's most important differentiator was being extremely good at KYC, AML, and working with regulators such that they did not lose their banking in the early days of the company. Think about how many people were trying to start crypto exchanges that couldn't get a bank deal to save their life. And so Brian was very, very sophisticated at having a strategy to keep his bank deal <laughs> and to, and to like be able to operate a business where so many people couldn't. And so that kind of sophistication to operate a fintech in, I don't know, Michael, I don't know if you have any stories about some of our folks in other countries around this. I don't know if we can say all the stories, but like being really sophisticated about the regulation where you're operating is definitely found in market fit. I mean, banking deals, it's so funny because so many of these stories are kind of similar when you go back. One company we funded out of Nigeria is coming named Paystack. And they were looking to build Stripe for Nigeria's Stripe bought them. And I remember the story they said, they were like, we need to integrate with the bank, but the bank doesn't even have an API to integrate with. And so they applied to YC, we rejected them. They came back six months later, you know what they did? They built the API for the bank so that they could integrate with it. Now, I don't know how you convince a bank to allow you to build their API, but like those guys did it. And it was the combination of technical brilliance and like a lack of intimidation. And, you know, in my mind, Stripe's so similar. Like they got a Wells Fargo deal so early as very young founders. It's like a lack of intimidation is really important when it comes to fintech founders. It's almost unavoidable that you're going to have to interact with the government, the banking, right? You're going to have to interact with big, hairy organizations. And founders who just think that you launch a product and it grows by itself and like dot, 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 you're a unicorn, they're not really well caught up for this. <laughs> and then one more on this one is sophistication around capital markets risk or fundraising risk. The garden variety startup that applies to YC and that probably doesn't get in is probably doing some kind of lending thing where they're like, cool, we're giving away loans. Our product is not very good. Our default rate is really good, but it's not really good. <laughs> and please give us $10 million so we can make more loans. And man, are there a lot of those. And they all suffer a common issue, which is they don't have product market fit for a software product or a product that users love. They're just giving, it's loans, man. It's a loans business. There's no technology. There's no software. There's no design. They're just lending money and trying to pretend it's a tech startup. And so 
the more that you see teams with sophistication around getting product market fit or getting usage around a truly useful financial product, whatever that looks like, where perhaps lending is part of the product, maybe, but not the main event, that is a really recommended approach, right? Like Stripe is not a pure lending business, but they have some lending features now. Square is not a pure lending business, but they have some lending features now. The really valuable fintechs solve a problem for people. And then maybe they do some lending later and that's like a a sideshow. But the pure play lending companies, a lot of people start them and the hit rate does not seem amazing. I'm not saying zero, I'm not saying zero, but the... That would not be my recommendation of just doing the obvious, naive lending thing. Anything to add there, Michael? We see a lot of these, man. Yeah, I think we've given a great summary. Okay, there you go. So that's, <laughs> that's another thing we look for is sophistication on, you know, if what you're just doing is giving money away on the, on the internet, that's not product market fit. Yeah, we <laughs> definitely need uh, more focus on the tech side rather than the fin side of fintech, yeah. right? And so you back international fintechs, you back local fintechs. And fintech has, I, I lose count, but 12, 13, I don't know how many verticals. And each vertical is a whole universe in and of itself, right? How do you keep track of all of it, right? How do you keep your ear to the ground? And while doing that, are there any specific verticals or maybe trends that you're most excited about specifically in fintech? I'll start here very briefly. I think one of the privileges about working at YC is that we've kind of inherited and then improved a program that organically attracts great people. And a lot of it has to do with kind of the foundational work that the YC founders did. But one of the nice parts of our job is unlike most investors, we don't have to spend a lot of our time chasing great companies down. And so to start, that does two things for us. One is that it allows us to see a lot of things, right? You know, 16,000 companies applied in the last batch. So it allows us to see a lot of things without spending a lot of time hunting it. And then also our model allows us to make a lot of bets and see what happens. And so sometimes I think, I don't want to, I think we're smart and all, but I don't want to elevate us too much. When you get to take more swings, (laughs) <laughs> when you get to see more stories, when you get to read more stories from applications, like you learn faster. And so I think structurally, we're set up to kind of just learn faster. And it's not because we're brilliant. It's because we don't have to hunt companies. So we have time. So I mean, Dalton can talk about the specifics in fintech, but I think that's kind of the counterintuitive opportunity we have by working at YC. Yeah, I think to try to give the specifics, I think that fintech is inherently fragmented. And we're not going to see a Google or Apple-sized company that gets international dominance and that there's incredible opportunity on a per-market basis to create the entire fintech stack from scratch. And that it probably, like, I don't really know what the future is, but there's a good chance that it will remain fragmented. Look at how many you know, banks there are in the US. Look how many banks there are globally. Look at how big it is as a percentage of the GDP or a percentage of the market cap of all stock markets all over the world. And again, and like if you look at something like um, the big social networks or the really big big tech companies, you know, like a few multinationals kind of dominate the whole market. And I'm not sure that's what's going to happen with fintech. You, you get what I'm trying to say? And so I think there's going to be a lot more $10 billion companies all over the world, and it's going to stay fragmented in a good way. 
And it won't just be that we have a Google-sized company that owns all global fintech. That wouldn't be the bet I would make. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong, but I think that's the opportunity really is that if you have local knowledge, local expertise, I think there's a lot of opportunities a founder to, to build the stack, payment processing, like basically the entire stack, pretty much every market needs. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. It's the uh, penny on the country, but it's a, a third or a fourth of GDP, right? Yeah. And, and <laughs> That's pretty big. Like market size is there, right? Like I'm not worried. Yeah. I'm never worried about market size for fintech. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, and I mean, 2020 was a huge year for fintech. We don't have to repeat all the sorrows of 2020 because it was a hard year for the entire globe, but it was a breakaway year, a breakout year for fintech. You know, what lessons did you learn and you think your companies learned uh, in the context of COVID? I'll say this. To start, I was really impressed with how fast our companies moved. I was really impressed with how fast our companies understood the potential of COVID and how fast that they built plans for it. And I don't know if you thought this way too, Dalton, but it kind of like reconfirmed to me why the good companies are good. You know, because sometimes you can be good and then you lose it and you get a punch in the face and you go down hard. COVID was a punch in the face for a lot of our companies, especially in the beginning when there was a lot of fear and a lot of uncertainty. And man, so many of them responded so quickly. So I think that was the first thing. I think the second thing, and you know, I heard this story kind of all over the world, the bank branch is closed. I mean, it's like, damn, like, like talk about changing how the normal human anywhere in the world has to go about doing their business life or their personal financial life when the bank branch closes. And for us all kind of tech people, we probably haven't been in a bank branch in a long time, but for normal humans, like that's a place. And so I think that that opened up and in many ways accelerated a lot of our fintech companies because people who are used to doing things the old way, the old way stopped working. Yeah. I mean, to basically say a similar thing, uh, digital payments, we already knew it was the future, but it just got super compacted. Think about how many of these fintechs were exposed to the online to offline companies. Like I always think about the old Stripe cohorts and how whatever cohort that DoorDash signed up in was a good one. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like tw- in 2013, this tiny little startup called DoorDash signed up. And, um, you know, <laughs> and so basically you're seeing, same thing with Rappi. I think about this with whoever's processing payments to Rappi all the time too. And so I think that a lot of the fintechs saw the side effects of moving towards online, offline, and e-commerce. And, and again, unfortunately, a lot of the brick and mortar in-person stuff had a really rough go of it. And so lots of years of transformation got crunched into like six months. Yeah. Yeah. To me, it's been incredible because I've been hosting a lot of the founders really before and, and during the pandemic, and we're still going through it. And it's been incredible, you know, while a lot of the world was crumbling, at least you had this optimism from founders because they were actually helping people pay their bills, you know, do very simple things that, you know, now were very challenging because you couldn't do them in person. I don't want to end this conversation without talking about a very important topic, and that is diversity, right, in, in the startup space as well as the venture capital space. I know you guys have plenty of thoughts around that. would love to hear whether you're happy with the, the progress of the industry, specifically as it comes to diversity, 
And whether or not you're happy, still, how can we continue improving? So if I were to start, I would say, no, I'm not happy. I think, unfortunately, though, this is a far more complicated issue than even I understood. And, you know, when I joined YC, one of the things that I was really passionate about was increasing diversity of the batch. And I think on the surface, it looks so simple. Like, why aren't the startup founders representative of the general population? Right? Doesn't that seem obvious, right? Especially in a world where all the startup funding is available. When I dug in deeper, I started realizing some really fundamental things. One, diversity in the startup world and diversity in the tech world are two entirely different issues. The amount of risk you have to be willing and able to attach to yourself for many years, for maybe a decade, is only in the startup world. It's not risky to get a job at Google. (laughs) So I think that was the first thing I had to unpack is why these are two separate topics, why diversity in tech doesn't actually cover startups. The second thing that I had to kind of unpack was tech is not in its own bubble. Like startups are not in their own bubble. This ecosystem is part of the American ecosystem. When I talk to a lot of underrepresented founders, and I very pointedly ask them, your most talented friends who you think should be startup founders, why are they not doing it? The thing that comes up time and time again that's somewhat heartbreaking is that for many of these people, their friends are the largest wage earners in their entire family or extended family. Imagine being 25 year old and being the safety net for your family. Right? Most people don't have to do that until you know, their parents are ailing and they're in their 60s. And these kids sometimes have to do it at 22, 23, 24, 25. And so the idea that that person would prefer a job versus doing a startup makes perfect sense. But you kind of have to dig that deep to come up with a completely obvious conclusion. Now, one area where I think things are pretty broken, unfortunately, is when it comes to CS education in college. I think that colleges haven't figured out that weirdly they've become vocational schools overnight, (laughs) Um, that the CS department used to be kind of a research department, and now it's kind of a vocational department. And I think the students are pulling it in that direction, but universities work slowly. And, you know, the lesson that I hear time and time again from talented people who do math and science but don't know how to code when they come to school is they don't see the university as a welcoming place for them to learn how to code. And unfortunately, that is the ticket in the tech world and in the startup world. That's the enabling ticket. Like, that's the skill that opens doors. And so, you know, at YC, we have a couple different tactics here. You know, one is the core tactic that where we started. You don't have to know us. You don't have to know us. You don't have to be recommended. You don't have to be our you best need a warm intro. You don't need a warm intro. You don't even need a, you don't need to fill out a deck and you know, know how slides should look and know how graphs should look. You fill out an application, it's exactly the same thing you filled out for college. So to me, like building off that base is super important. Like the door is default open as opposed to with almost every other fund, the door is default closed. On top of that, We've invested in a number of, donated to a number of organizations that are actually trying to solve that problem in college, trying to give students extra support so they can get through those gut classes in the CS department, learn how to code, and then use that skill afterwards. And then I think the last thing is we have to show people who are succeeding. One of the nice things about YC is that we fund a lot of companies. 
So since 2015, we have funded over 500 women, over 200 Black founders, and close to 300 Latinx founders. And you have to show that people are doing it. Like you have to make them visible in order for people to want to walk in their footsteps. So one of the great things we did this summer was just put out directory of those founders. So people can go to the Y Combinator website and see founders who might have had the same life story as them, but who figured out how to get access to this world. I don't think this problem is going to be solved overnight. It's been encouraging to me, though, that I think that especially the protests in Black Lives Matter over the last summer has made this a topic that's a top three to five topic in this world. Whereas I would say for, for years in the past, that wasn't the case. The last thing I will say, though, is that like, I want to defeat the myth of the like, racist investor. I think the myth of the racist investor is something that might be holding people back who otherwise should explore doing startups. If you're underrepresented, are you going to encounter an investor who is biased against you for some reason? Sure. Like in your story, I'm sure you will. Is that the thing that's going to prevent you from making your company work? No. And the fun thing about startups is a thousand things can kill you. And so just add that one to the list. But that shouldn't discourage you because there are a lot of people who want to write checks to underrepresented founders. And when underrepresented founders do YC, is it hard for them to fundraise? Sure. But do they get money? Yes. And so is the path the easiest path? No. But most underrepresented people don't walk the easiest path. And that's okay. It makes you more resilient. So that's how I think about it. I mean to that. I, I can <laughs> I can relate to that path. <laughs> uh, no, I'm I'm so glad I, I asked. And before we go, and I, we're running out of time, unfortunately, I wanted to hear your thoughts on the road ahead for YC. How do you envision the future of the organization? You know, I'll take one quick step. I want to hear what Dalton actually has to say on this one. <laughs> for me, the coolest thing about YC is that it is built by people who lived that our world. It's being built and run by people who are startup founders. And like, we get to ask ourselves, what unfair advantages do we wish we had? And how do we give as many unfair advantages to YC companies as humanly possible? And whether it's helping them hire, helping them get customers, helping them just with the emotional support of having batchmates who know what they're going through. To me, that work's not done. Like it's never done. <laughs> we can always stack more and more advantages. And like one day I want to be in a world where people say to themselves like, man, like I just don't want to compete against a YC company. They've got too many advantages. Wouldn't that be a shit show if the one organization at our kind of size and scale and reputation, which had a default open door to the world, gave you more advantages than all the other firms that have a default closed door. Like, wouldn't it show everyone else in our industry you could do it differently? I think that'd be amazing. Yeah, very well said. I think the only thing I would add is I still have this mental model of building a product and that it's continuously improving. And then again, if you look at this, I told you the stories about the network effects of the fintechs, company A referring company B, and we have companies helping each other, like getting banking deals or helping each other negotiate debt deals or like the amount of crazy unfair advantages you get as there's more people in the network that are able to help you out or face similar problems is crazy. So think about how hard it is to get your first customers. We make it easier. 
Think about how hard it is to raise money when you need it. Okay, we make it easier. Think about how hard it is to like, hey, do you know anyone at Facebook that does da 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 da? Yeah, someone does. <laughs> and so, and so, like, that's what's been fascinating to witness is that as the scale of the network gets larger, it becomes more valuable. And I'm not sure this is appreciated or understood by outsiders, where they they're like, well, you know, it's pretty big now, and it used to be cool when it was tiny. And as Michael, he was there. I don't think that's true at all. <laughs> when it's tiny, the resources that we b- would bring to bear was like minuscule, right? Yeah. You want to speak to that, Michael? Like, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'll say this. Man, like when I did YC the first time, I think there was one YC company that ever raised a Series A. That was it. Like that, that was as far as every YC company had gone. <laughs> Do you want to talk to anyone about anything beyond that? You better find that person. And, you know, to add to Dalton's point, I think the coolest thing about what he described is that we aren't the gatekeepers of that. Like we aren't the gatekeepers to the community. Like YC's backbone is software. If you want to go talk to an alum, you don't have to ask us for an introduction. It doesn't scale with the humans. It scales with the software. Go find them. Go write them a good email. Every intelligent and successful person reads your email. If you write a good one, they'll reply. They'll try to help. And so to me, I think that's the other cool thing is that as this thing scales, I think people will realize more and more how much of a software company YC is and how, in a weird way, the entire kind of VC community that funds tech companies they aren't software companies. <laughs> and that's just weird. And like, in some way, it's going to be obvious in hindsight that building a software company in this space was always the right move. It's probably always the right move in almost every space now, right? Absolutely fascinating conversation. Michael, Dalton, can't thank you enough for joining us, for inspiring us. I hope you inspire even more entrepreneurs after this show comes out. And goes without saying that you are now friends of Wharton, of of the podcast. And once we're back to in-person normality, we want to see you on campus. Absolutely. (laughs) Thanks for having us, man. This is a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. It means a lot and helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and the rest of social media at Wharton Fintech. You will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. We also want to extend a special thank you to our show editor, Rafael Ostria. Signing off, I'm your host, Miguel Armaza.